finishing up today this short little three-week series that we started uh, just to look at uh, the death of George Floyd and the effects that it had here on the Twin Cities with the view of, of how to move forward. Our first week was uh, focused on acknowledging that, that current and historical problems exist and that we have responsibility, maybe not necessarily guilt, but responsibility, and we want to move forward, uh, not out of a sense of, of white guilt, uh, not out of a sense of being white savior, but out as, as a sense of, of being responsible to really fulfill what Jesus has as a vision for his church, a people made up of, of all nations, all tribes, all tongues. Uh, last week, we had Andrew Crawley come and just share from his perspective what it meant as a as an uh, African-American man uh, to uh, acknowledge that there is an, indeed a need for correction in regard to the problems of racism in this country, but there's also uh, a problem and a, and a uh, warning against overcorrection. I thought his metaphor uh, last week was really great in terms of seeing that you know, there's a, we're on a road uh, and we can, we can make mistakes and veer off into a ditch uh, but if we overcorrect out of an effort to get out of the ditch or to avoid the ditch, we can land in the other ditch. And so we indeed want to stay on the road. This week, I want to look at uh, moving forward. What does it mean to move forward in, in addressing the problems of racism, addressing the problems of the, the segregation of the churches, which is not just a, a white problem, but is a, a black problem. Every, it's a problem with all of the various uh, different tribes of churches that we have that are separated by, uh, by color and by, and by people. There really doesn't uh, reflect the vision that Jesus had. How do we move forward to, to address the needs of our culture and the challenges that, that, it, that it faces uh, while remaining true to the, to the mission of Jesus Christ and his calling upon our lives? And so, you know, there's obviously, um, there is an abundance of news sources, of books, of podcasts, of, of articles that uh, are all speaking to this, this problem of, of racism in America. Uh, and we all have, or many of us have, relationships with, with people of color that are also contributing uh, to um, the, the uh, conversations in our minds and how we're learning and how we're growing. Some of us work in environments where they can see the effects and the, of, of disparities. Um, and we can see that with, within all of these various uh, sources of input that we have, that there are, you know, there are political visions, there are social visions, there are economic visions, um, and now, just a few weeks away from the election, all of these things seem to be wrapped up. And everybody has their data. Everybody has their history. Everybody has their positions. And it's really hard to sift through uh, all of the information, all of the relationships, uh, all of the appeals. And um, I think that it's, it's, it's uh, really uh, pressing upon us to have a way of proceeding forward. Um, and uh, I think that, that God provides that for us. Uh, today we're looking at the, the book of James. And the reason why I selected the book of James is that there are some social and historical circumstances that James is trying to address. James was an apostle. James was one of the brothers of Jesus Christ. 
uh, had just obviously firsthand access and knowledge of his brother, who was also the Lord. And uh, James is addressing, so he, he writes, um, as, as Karen read, he writes to the 12 tribes of Israel that, that are of the dispersion. And so uh, Israel, at v- in various places throughout its history, up until the, the time of Jesus Christ and then the first century afterward, um, had gone through a, a number of events where its people were scattered among the nations. So uh, more than 500 years prior to the time of Christ, the Assyrians had captived had, had, had captured uh, the northern tribes and scattered them amongst the nations. Uh, ba- Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar had scattered uh, the lower two tribes of Judah and Benjamin uh, 150 years or so after the Assyrians had scattered Israel. Um, we, we read in the New Testament book of Acts that at, upon the stoning of, of Stephen, there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, which led to uh, the dispersion of, of Jews uh, and Christians from the city of Jerusalem. So there, Israel had a history, uh, the people of Jerusalem had a history of, of being dispersed. And so James is writing to the, the Christian Jews that had been dispersed among the nations. And you had, because of the varying timelines of those various dispersions, you had some people that would have been uh, in their places for a long time, enough time to have, over the generations, built up wealth and property and work. Uh, But then you also had people that were just newly dispersed from Jerusalem, coming into all of these various cities and towns where some Jews had been established for a long time, but these these new uh, immigrants would not have had the time to develop the the resources and to generate wealth over generations and most likely had to leave most of their assets behind, giving up even their homes and their lands. And so it seems like James is writing to a historical situation where you had uh, people living together and because of persecution, because of racism, because of differences of, of, of wealth and economics, they were getting into conflict. And so James is writing. It's not the only issue that he's addressing in the book of James, but it's a, it's a significant one that comes up uh, across the book. How to deal with these various uh, economic disparities, class disparities within the people of, of, of Israel that had now called themselves Christians, had believed in Jesus Christ. And obviously the, the issue of race and racism in our own context, is not separated from uh, economics, from poverty, from uh, income and and wealth disparities, regardless of of those reasons. Obviously, racism is a part of that, but we have similar types of dynamics in addition to the racism uh, in in regard to people of color. Uh, And so there are some similarities here, and we're going to get more into some of the historical aspects of of the economics when we go to our uh, series next summer on racism. But I just want to look at what James here has to say about um, proceeding when these kinds of challenges exist. How do we live with ourselves as people in a way that presses on towards the vision that Jesus Christ uh, has for his church 
How can we be faithful to Christ? How can we love one another? Well, James really um, comes forward in his, in his letter with, I think, two really prominent um, things that are essential for us to have as Christians living at this time, dealing with similar types of, of conflicts and disparities and challenges. The first thing he does is that he does give them a vision. Now, he's building off of the vision that, that Israel would have had in, in calling them the 12 tribes. That would have immediately pulled the, those, those, Christian, those Jewish Christians back to the early promises of God, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the nation of Israel under Moses, and then to the kings. Uh, the promise of a land under a king who would rule forever, protecting his people from harm and establishing peace forever. So just bringing up the 12 tribes would have pressed them back to those ideas. But he says they're the 12 tribes of the dispersion. You're not at home. You're not at home where you're at. Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you're still not at home. Again, pressing them to recognize and to hold fast to the idea that, that God through Christ has secured for them a home, and it's in the future. It's in the land. It is, it is going to be real. It's going to be on this earth. There is an effort that Jesus is making, as he told his apostles when he was on earth, that he was going to prepare a place for them. And so, so James is moving them to hold on to this, this biblical and historical vision that they've always had is that, is that God is preparing a place for them, and that's what you've got to have in your mind as your home. And that helps them recognize that a lack of settledness, a lack of everything being perfect, a lack of complete security, a lack of complete comfort, that's going to be part of what it means to live on this earth, but yet not at home. The other thing that he brings up throughout the book, and I think that it's, it's from, a, from, a, from an emphasis standpoint, James is ad addressing this idea, brings up this idea in, in, a, in a higher percentage than most of the New Testament books, and that is the idea of, of judgment. Um, James is constantly reminding his readers throughout the book that, that God will be judging, that Jesus Christ will be judging us for the way that we live our lives here on this earth, for the, the way we treat other people, uh, the way that we orient ourselves toward the rich or toward the poor. Jesus is going to be judging us, again, setting uh, his readers to press their minds towards the future uh, and to prepare for that end. And finally, this idea of freedom. Several times um, in, the, in the reading, as Karen read, that, there, that associated with following God and his vision and God and his word, and we're going to get into the, some of the details of this a little bit later, um, similar to the Proverbs, he promises that God will provide this sense of, of freedom and happiness and prosperity a big theme of the wisdom literature, which James is tapping into here. So those are the, 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 the aspects of the vision that James is, is promoting for his readers and, and for us. So the second thing, in addition to vision, 
is a demeanor. How we behave toward others, our outward manner of living. And it's really this demeanor that I want to focus on today. We'll spend time on the vision throughout these various series coming up, coming up over the next 13 to 14 months. Uh, but I think demeanor um, is really something that we need to pay attention to in ourselves and in those who we are seeking for wisdom. There are qualities that James highlights and describes that reflect one who is wise, that reflect one who knows how to skillfully live in this, in this world with other people. And that really is what the definition of wisdom is, skillfulness in living. And so he describes qualities, highlights qualities that reflect the wisdom of God, and he highlights qualities that reflect the wisdom of the world. So let me go through these qualities. There's actually quite a few of them, and I think that especially now at this time, as we, as we look towards uh, this election coming up, um, this helps us get some sense of understanding about who's coming at us with what type of of wisdom, You know, we, we are increasingly getting in the mail, and I know some people are getting these in their churches. We don't have one of these. Uh, maybe even places of work, I don't know. Uh, voting guides. You know, here, here are where all of the various candidates are at on their various policies. And, you know, and after, as I've, you know, as I've been reading James for the, a couple weeks, uh, what I would like to know is um, who of these people are just mean people? And we're going to see that one of the qualities that James brings up is, is this uh, quality of meanness, obviously, as a descriptor of somebody coming from the wisdom of the world. There are, there are in, regardless of policies, regardless of even uh, beliefs, and now those are important, but in addition to where people stand on policies, in, in addition to where people stand on their beliefs, whether they're theological or political or, or whatever, there is also much to tell from a person's demeanor. And it's important that we proceed in this conversation on, on racism, um, what it means for the people of God in our world, in our cities, watching our demeanors and listening to those, to learn from those whose demeanors also reflect wisdom. Well, the first quality uh, is that you are quick to, the text says here, actually it means quick to receive information and to learn. So when, and he, he is giving these qualities in the context of conflict circumstances. So when you're in the middle of conflict, what James is saying is that you need to approach these situations as if you have something to learn, as if you don't have all of the information. You need to be slow to speak. Usually we're quick to speak when we think that we've got all of the answers, we've got everything figured out, and we think everybody just needs to hear us out. James is saying that that is not the way of wisdom. You need to, you need to have the humble perspective. You don't know everything. You need to know and learn more, and you need to be in this position of not being a teacher, 
but of, of, but of listening and listening to others, slow to speak, and then slow to anger. We get, we get angry when we feel threatened. And sometimes people have beliefs or even actions that we feel are going to threaten us. James argues that we need to be slow to anger, slow to feel threatened. Approach things with humility. Approach things as if you're going to learn something. Approach the person that you're in conflict with uh, with a perspective that they have something to teach you. That will um, de-escalate the situation that's creating the conflict, and it's going to put you in a position to better learn. He says, if you do not have these three qualities, if you're not quick to listen and to learn, if you're not slow to speak, if you're not slow to anger, you're characterized by what he says is moral filthiness. And that wickedness abounds in you. Now, we usually associate really harsh crimes, rape and murder and sexual immorality, uh, stealing, physical and violent abuse with like moral filthiness and abounding wickedness. But here he's saying if how you approach conflict, if you approach it in the opposite way, other than being quick to learn, slow to speak and slow to anger, that you're really characterized as being morally filthy and abounding in wickedness. He goes on. The wisdom of the world, which he says is, is also characterized as demonic, has jealousy as one of its qualities. And in addition to jealousy, selfish ambition. And both of these things, both of these qualities have within them this sense of competitiveness that you want to either have or take what somebody else has or that you want to get it before they do. And so it's, it's, it shows a lack of concern for the other, and it's only a selfish approach that you're taking. Purity is a quality of the wisdom of God. And, it, and at its core, what it means is that the, the person has nothing to hide. They are above reproach. Not that they're perfect, but that they, don't live the, they live their life in a transparent way. They're honest and open with who they are, and they have nothing to hide in terms of their character. Got, there's no glaring problems that are going to, to sabotage or circumvent the working of good. They are peaceable. And this is an interesting word. Uh, sometimes I think, well, when we read the word peaceable, we can think, well, they're easily, easy to get along with. But what he means by peaceable here is that they are free. It's a disposition that is free from anxiety, free from inner turmoil, and free from fear. That's what it means to be peaceable, that there's this, this inner disposition that's characterized by peace. He says gentleness and forbearance are also characteristics of godly wisdom, wisdom from above. This means that, that people are, they're willing and able to bear the weight of others' offenses against them without retaliating, without causing their harm. 
you're, you're willing and able to be harmed without harming back. That's what it means to be gentle and forbearing. And then he says, open to reason, which is similar to what he said in the first chapter about being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. This idea of open to reason, it literally means that you're open to persuasion. You're, you're actually wanting people to convince you of their opinion. You're open to what they have to say, and you'd like them to make a good effort in, in communicating their argument to you because you'd really like to understand where they're coming from. And maybe, as John Stuart Mill argued in, in his book on liberty, which is just, I think it's just one of the best treatments that I've read, on, on why we need to listen to people that are in the minority, even if there's one person, he said, even if there is one person that is dissenting from the majority, the majority should be very quick to hear that one dissenting person out for two reasons. One, even if they're wrong, it's going to help the majority come to a greater understanding of the truth about their own perspective. Second, if that one dissenter is right, it has the power to correct and to strengthen the majority. That is what it means to be open to reason. You're wanting to be convinced that, that because you believe that there's something I could improve in the way I'm thinking about things. Full of mercy and good fruit means that you're, you're willing to extend kindness and compassion to, to needs and then follow that up with practical help. It's not just kindness and empathy. Those are important. It's kindness and empathy and then following that up to meet needs. Finally, we see the last two. One, impartial. You're free of prejudice. And this would obviously be the, a quality that we would need as we, we seek to live out a life that increasingly is opposed to racism and, and all forms of discrimination. And then lastly, genuine and sincere. This literally just means that you're not pretending to be somebody or something that you're not. You are who you are. Your words and your actions are consistent, and you're not trying to be somebody else. And so again, these are, these are contrasting wisdoms. There are wisdom from above. There's wisdom from God. And those are all those positive qualities. Then there is the earthly wisdom demonic wisdom that is characterized by asserting yourself, selfish ambition, jealousy and envy, tearing the other person down, not listening to other people's arguments. We see all these things, I think, virtually everywhere, every day. Well, how do we embody the wisdom of God? How do we shed off this worldly wisdom that we indeed are all guilty of? And how do we embody this wisdom of God so that we can go forward into the church and into the world in such a way that is really going to be effective in, in, in fulfilling the vision that Jesus has for us and effective in actually being a force of reconciliation in this world, being skillful in our relationships with other people? Well, he gives us a few instructions. He said we need to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Now, 
Obviously, the implanted word, when we believe in the gospel, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. He justifies us and identifies us with Christ that, that, that saves or justifies us. But I think he's speaking here of this process of increasing in our salvation, what, what Paul would call sanctification. So he says, receive with meekness. So, again, this is emphasizing the spirit of humility and gentleness toward the seed, the seed of the gospel that was planted into us. There, if, if we have believed in the gospel, the Holy Spirit has been put inside of us and is dwelling in us, and that seed of the gospel, that Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ in us, has the capability of expanding and growing and filling out inside of us, pushing out this earthly demonic wisdom and increasingly embodying the godly wisdom within our within our minds and within our actions we don't go to the bible to prove our already held positions now when the bible teaches us and we grow and learn and we come to recognize a truth it's good to hold on to that truth paul says let's let us hold on to what we have already come to and known but there's still a position of meekness and humility as we go to the word because there's still more to know there's still more to grow on there's deeper there's truths that we need to deepen in if we go to the bible with the arrogant perspective that we're going to use it as an authority to prove our point and dominate others we're missing the point of the word and it is going to suppress that implanted seed rather than allow, allow it to grow and then he has this this metaphor he says you know if you go to the word and don't do it you're like somebody who goes and looks intently at the mirror and then walks away forgetting what he looks like now as i've read that and as, as i've done some reading on this it seems like James understands that that's how we typically look in the mirror. I mean, how many of us stand in the mirror for long periods of time when we're dressing or, or, or combing our hair or getting made up, and we're, just, we're there for a long time so we know what we look like, or we keep coming back, you know, just to make sure that we don't have hair out of place or some makeup wasn't right. We easily forget what we look like, even when we look intently at a mirror for a long period of time. We walk away and we forget. And he says we can approach the scriptures that way. And it, and it has with it a sense that the word, when we do it, and when we persevere in it, he says if you persevere, if you continue in this seeking after the word this looking into the word this doing of the word if you persevere and continue in it what the what the scriptures does is it tells us who we are the mirror tells us who we are at least what we look like but then we forget we walk away but the word has a way of of changing our perspective of ourself which is essential in acknowledging that it is Christ who we want to become like. As the apostles and the authors of the New Testament say, we are 
becoming less, so Christ becomes more. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. What is earthly within us needs to decrease so that Christ can increase. And that's what James says happens if we persevere in our continuing in the word. And, and with that is a sense that the, the word is not something that we just go to to prove our position so that we can dominate others, so we can be quick to speak. The word is there for us to humbly go before and dwell in and meditate upon. We're commanded in Scripture that let the Word of of God dwell richly. And that that Word of God dwelling richly feeds that seed. And then that seed grows. And this is what it means to be a doer of the Word. And as we are transformed with a greater understanding of who we are and what our sin is and what Christ is, I think there's, there's two things that we have to recognize when he says, uh, when we realize that the, that the word is telling us who we are. It is telling us who we are in regard to our sin that needs to be put off, where worldly and demonic wisdom exists. But it's also telling us who we are in Jesus Christ and what that seed wants to grow into. And if we are approaching it with humility and weakness, we're able to, to confess and put off what Christ is wanting to put off in us, that sin that is to be overcome, and then in humility that Christ is able to grow him in a deeper way inside of us. The word is alive, and it will grow. Also, Jesus provides what we're looking for. Jesus provides a vision that we really need to have is our vision. There are all kinds of visions out there, what the world from their perspectives should be like. And we have to push off the temptation to jump on board with these alternative visions. Jesus has a vision for a kingdom for a government, for a nation. We don't use the word kingdom very much, but that's what it's speaking to. Jesus has a vision for a nation and its government that will be established in perfect unity and peace. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus has a vision for a home. For us, where we can settle forever and be safe and rest. And Jesus has a vision for our lives that he says will be characterized by happiness and prosperity through the Holy Spirit that has been planted in us. So that even in the midst of conflict, And even in the midst of of troubled times, rich or poor, somewhere in between, those are not determinants of our happiness or of our prosperity. The Holy Spirit living inside of us, growing Jesus in us, 
with the wisdom of God is what determines our happiness and prosperity. But we must approach meekly. We must approach meekly. We have to recognize that Jesus is Lord and not us. Jesus has the vision and the kingdom and the power, not us. And we must pursue him. And we must pursue his word and let it transform us so that we have the vision and the demeanor that is needed for the work that we've got to do here on this earth as we anticipate the coming of Jesus' kingdom. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you for really the strong words that James has for us and the, uh, the clarity at which he speaks and the very practical nature of his instruction. Lord God, I pray that you would help us as a church to be doers of the word so that we could really have Jesus' vision as ours and have Jesus' demeanor toward others as ours. That we could really be characterized by these, by these qualities, God, which are really uh, in short supply here on this earth. God, help us to really see that um, wisdom is bound up in Christ and in the expression of these qualities, and let us pursue them. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen.